Welcome to Scraps. Before we start, here's a disclaimer. This is a very different episode to any of our previous ones. And if you're ready to listen, let's start. In one of our earlier podcast episodes, our guest Stanton Rowe, who was a pioneer in Valtrix replacement technology, called Innovation a Lonely Sport. Stan was the pioneer who made valve replacement to be a minimally invasive procedure in contrast to how it was being done until that point, which was via open heart surgery. To me, Stan had substantiated what I had always believed. I had always theorized in my brain that science and sports have much in common. Sports women and men are like trainees in science or an entry-level scientist or an engineer uh, in the industry. And professors and managers are like coaches. Coaches identify talent, educate, train, equip their sportsmen and women and nurture them. And these trainees then go on to make a name for themselves, much like how sportsmen and women do in their respective areas of sports. But once you reach a certain level, it has always been said that it is the attitude, soft skills, and the talent that carries one forward. And the difference one one could argue in sports is that it's a very niche area for the physically gifted, while science is more of a different one for a curious mind. Another common thread and a big difference between sports and science and innovation is about productivity. In sports, performance is judged every single day when someone steps on a field, while in science and innovation, much like life, it is a hard grind. Sports in general has enough shows to talk about these successes and failures. And beyond discipline and hard work, one thing that I've always believed that we as people in science should learn from sports is to talk about their stories. This podcast is an effort to change that and to celebrate the stories behind the successes and failures in science. The best of the best always aspire for perfection, trust their processes, and always take into account the conditions and resources that they have to hand. And this is true beyond academia too, and in management and leadership, which is one of the big reasons why many will appreciate the Netflix documentary of Michael Jordan and draw many parallels and I have many social media posts on that. One aspect where science has always been different to sport Um, is that scientists and scientific leaders will always react to the data, but sportsmen tend to rely more on their physical instinct and muscle memory. And this is where our guest today comes in. He has made an age-old sport stand up and take a listen. He has been a pivotal influence in turning a sport that had a long history and a gut feel that was entrenched in it into a data-driven sport that that it is today. And no, I'm not talking about baseball. Our guest has been instrumental in educating players, administrators who run the sport franchises, and more importantly, when sport reporting was like a fandom, it was a very opinionated art, he ensured that he educated his audience, much like how a scientist would dissect a hypothesis. I first knew him through his column, Polite Inquiries, for a website called Quick Info, um, and His columns are so insightful, and I must say 90% of all the columns that I've read of him is like reading a scientific paper. He picks a hypothesis that is widely believed to be true, dissects it out with data, proves it or disproves it, and the reader is so much richer for it. Without further ado, 
I think it is important for us to hear from the man, an Aussie who I've gone, got to know through his columns, lives in England now, and is an accomplished, award-winning sports documenta- documentary filmmaker, columnist, podcaster, analyst, and I'm running out of breath. And he's worked with the great Shane one with Melbourne Stars, uh, the franchise in Big Bash League, St. Lucia Stars for the Caribbean Premier League, and is a ball-by-ball com- ball ball commentator for one of UK's premier sports radio stations. Welcome to the show, Jared Kimber. That was a hell of an intro. Uh, is, it, is it time for us to finish the podcast or we got time for me to talk now? Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> oh, no problem. So happy to be here. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to pull in with the American voice and just confess <laughs> my ignorance to cricket. I think, I think before we launch into this, everybody could, could benefit from just a brief primer on how does cricket work and, and a little bit of its influence on American sports. Yeah, well, cricket basically is the father of baseball. Um, I mean, they both, I suppose, both came out of a similar idea of cavemen throwing rocks at other cavemen and then biffing them with, uh, with big sticks. But, uh, but yeah, cricket was the sort of the, the game that developed first. And it's kind of like the best way to explain it is it's like a 3D version of, of baseball. So baseball, uh, the ball doesn't bounce when the pitcher throws it in and you, you can only hit the ball kind of in front of you. Uh, cricket, you can hit through the, you can hit the ball anywhere and the ball bounces, uh, when it comes down to the, the batter. In, f- in fact, in baseball, they used to call it a batsman, which is what we call it in cricket. And now we're starting to call it a batter because it turns out women actually also like cricket, but that's a whole different story. But, um, essentially it was a, it was a really interesting sport in that it was used as a uh, tool of the empire as well so england would go around the world they would steal all of your resources they would tell you to be more polite uh and then they would say would you like to play cricket and uh it turned out that some of these um countries who despised england in many different ways decided that they liked cricket whereas football which was you know soccer their other sport their other big sport in england that kind of went off on its own and just did its own thing separate to england and it got big uh separate whereas cricket only got big in places where England was involved um, on a day-to-day basis. So uh, Argentina, for instance, were quite big into cricket. And then when England stopped being involved in Argentina, it just disappeared as, as a sport. Ireland was quite similar. America was quite similar. Uh, the first international cricket game was between America and Canada. And then for the next, well, uh, last 100 years or so, America's really struggled um, as they've gone off in, uh, with their own sports. So at one stage, cricket was the biggest sport. I think the phrase megastar comes from cricket. If you've ever heard anyone talk about a sticky wicket, um, that comes from cricket. There are so many phrases in the English language that are used all around the world that come from the sport because it was it was the first international sport. I mean, cricket was – we had players who played all around the world for money in the mid-1800s at a point where the uh, modern Olympics hadn't even come back yet. So uh, it was – it's uh, – it's kind of a little bit like baseball, but at some in some levels, it's just a lot more nuanced than baseball. Um, you can get hit in cricket, and you don't get you don't get to go to the next base. You just have to face the next ball, uh, which brings in a, a violent aspect that the baseball doesn't quite have. Uh, it also the the difference in speeds of the bowlers can, uh, which are the pitchers in cricket, can vary by up to. Uh, trying to think of the speeds, probably up to 50, 55 miles an hour. So you don't get that in baseball. You don't get people in baseball uh, delivering their pitches that slowly or that fast. So cricket has a sort of a wider specter of, of a spectrum of what you can do. Um, and I, I just a very, you know, he, here's a story 
the the writer right thompson who's you know one of the, the best american uh writers of anything but certainly in sport he came to a game and it was only about the 20th game of cricket he went to that he realized that in cricket batsmen actually aim the ball where they want it to go uh, whereas in baseball obviously it's a lot more see ball hit ball and hope it goes where, <laughs> it goes where you want so it's a very interesting sport because it's so it's so intertwined with the nationalities so obviously american sports and and foot and soccer are very much club based and franchise based and city based whereas cricket is the still to this day the most international of sports um that almost all the competitions up until the last 5 years um at the major competitions have been international so you see countries rise and fall based on their cricket teams and uh you know when the the west indies which is the caribbean they play as a collective unit you know they talked about um very much wanting people to know where they were from um and you see that with the indians so it becomes almost the most important cricket match in any country's um history is usually the first time they beat england because uh they've all been oppressed by england at what some stage or the other so uh that's why the sport is so um uh, such a big thing despite the fact that it doesn't really translate brilliantly into modern life the, the major part of the, the the shortest form of cricket goes for longer than a baseball game um and the longest form of cricket goes for five days um and you can't play when it's raining so it's a it's a very peculiar sport of which you would not you would not invent almost anything that happens in cricket today um but it's almost the peculiarities of it that make it so uh wildly uh interesting but it takes a long time you there's a there's more shibboleths in cricket than there is in almost any other sport that's ever existed uh you do need a uh, cricket dictionary next to you at most times just to understand the basic principles of the sport that's that's fantastic i think the most i really knew about cricket was that it had the potential to to play on forever and I'm a, I'm a big sports fan. We have, you know, NFL is on from 8 in the morning to 8 at night on Sundays, every Monday, every Thursday night. But a five-day game, that's that's a commitment. How does that translate into broadcast? I mean, I imagine that's kind of where some of the columns really come into play is because it allows people to consume it where they otherwise wouldn't be able to. Yeah, it's really interesting. When they first started playing test matches, so England, which was because it came on the back of the Industrial Revolution, um, England already said in eight, well, by the time the first test came around 1877, people are already saying, well, we have no time for sport that takes three days. Uh, which is funny because that's the sort of thing you hear about everything now. But to think that England was thinking that way in 1877, whereas Australia decided that their test matches would be five days. Some other countries went for unlimited test matches. So literally you played until you finished. And I think the longest is nine days. Uh, it, from a broadcast perspective, it actually works really brilliantly. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't go perfectly into modern society. But if you think about it from a broadcast, you know that the same fans are going to come back day after day after day. So from an advertising perspective and from a, um, a streaming perspective and a cable TV, they love it because it's like, you know, a football game, you've got someone for three and a half, four hours and then they disappear and you maybe can get them to come to the after game show. And maybe on Tuesday, you can get another show looking back at what happened. Whereas test cricket is like, no, no, you're going to have to come back the next day and the next day. So there's a beautiful narrative there. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest websites in the world, which is, well, um, Arun was talking about earlier, it's a website I worked on, which is ESPN's cricket site, Crick Info. They bought it. It's one of the oldest websites in the world. The reason it was one of the biggest websites in the world is because it's not just the amount of people that went on the website, it's how long they stayed on that. 
So the average the average um, time spent on something like the Guardian or MSB, MSNBC or something like that is probably seven seconds. People go on, they click off. They don't spend a lot of time on websites. I think even to this day, the average time on on Crick Info or the other cricket, big cricket website, which is called Crick Buzz, they're like three, four, five, six, seven minutes because everything stretches out in cricket. So it actually, in some ways, all the stuff that you wouldn't design it for in modern life actually works really well when it comes to algorithms and when it comes to cable TV. And, and, and do you want to, and just as a comparison, Jared, do you want to just tell people what was the total amount of people who logged into Crickinfo um, at, at when the whole acquisition was made and, or how big Crickinfo is in terms yeah. of the number of people? Well, well Crick- into the website because that that'll put it into perspective to how far your your columns reach. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if my columns reach that far, but yeah, it, Crick Info started essentially before the www. So it started in uh, forums in uh, the late '80s, early '90s, um, and it started because there was a bunch of Indian, Pakistani, Australian, English people who were studying in America. So the internet was going on in America, and all these people were suddenly taken away from cricket because there was no access to cricket at that stage in America. It didn't make the mainstream press at all. I mean, it barely does now, but even compared to then. And so these people started talking about cricket. And with by 1996, it was essentially, you know, in, in the top handful, if not the biggest website in the world uh, for a little while. Um, by 1997 or 1998, Mick Jagger came along and uh, gave them money to put cricket on video. Uh, and when I say cricket on video on the internet, you can imagine how bad it was. Remember trying to open a photo back in the internet in the 90s. So it was like, what, it, it literally took you, you would see, so cricket's such a, you know, it's not like, a, it's not like um, a soccer or basketball. There isn't constant action. So you could literally see a frame and then five seconds later, you'd see another frame. So in cricket, you could see a frame of a guy literally looking at a cricket ball and then five seconds later, you'd see some grass. Um, I do remember those days, Jared, very, very vividly. <laughs> when I was first to work for grad school in the US, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it grew. And then, as I said, by 1996, it was one of the biggest websites in the world. By, I think, 1999, it had something like 98% of all cricket traffic was through Crick Info. And uh, it's actually, it's a brilliant story in itself in that it, it is now a multi-billion dollar website and it now has 38 million active users. And as I said, those users use this website for long periods of time. I think it's still the biggest um, single sport um, independent website in the world. Uh, but the people who founded it, these nerds, uh, you know, nuclear physicists and engineers and, uh, you know, uh, well, uh, Vishal Misra is one of my friends. He's a professor at Columbia now. Um, half of them are like either professors or, or run their own businesses, but they made a billion dollar business and they sold their 75% stake in it for $1 because they'd run it into the ground through the dot com um, boom. So they should have made, they should all be very rich men on the back of this website. I think there was only one woman um, in, in the, in the 70 odd uh, people who, who started it. And, um, Instead, they, uh, they, they got caught up. The owner, a guy called Simon King, who now lives in, oh, I should know. It's, uh, East Texas somewhere. Um, he runs a, a, mag- a bunch of magazines in East Texas. Uh, lovely guy. Uh, he's, uh, related to Nigella Lawson and the King family in the UK who, like, run a, the Tory party, I think. Um, and uh, Simon's an incredible guy, but he says, it's not like we wasted the money. We didn't go out and buy um, a 747s, but they did lose the money at an incredible rate. So it's, it's an incredible place to work for uh, because it was built on the back of people who love cricket. And, and also because of that story, uh, even when ESPN came in and, you know, I, 
uh, as someone who worked for ESPN for 10 years, I have mixed feelings about them as a company, but they couldn't take away the sort of uh, amateur spirit that Crick Info had. And it really, uh, to this day, is one of the more remarkable achievements of the internet. And it sort of, it, it lasted from the start of the internet through to now. Um, and it's a very, very uh, interesting place for cricket fans. Yeah, that is, that is, I mean, just having lived through the early days of Crick Info to what it is now. And, and I know so many of, of my friends who actually spend days, especially following ball by ball commentary when they can't watch some, watch the sport, they can actually follow it on the website on Crick Info. So uh, Jared, coming back to you, how did the kid from uh, from uh, Melbourne kind of move and with a degree in filmmaking move to journalism? What was that that path or why did you move from filmmaking to journalism? Although there are parallels, but it'll be nice to hear that story from you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I didn't even finish uh, film school. I had a fight with my professors and then I <laughs> never put in my final thing. So to say I have a degree is even pushing it. Um, uh, I, Yet you're an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Go go fetch that. Yeah, take that. Fourth grade film college. Um, <laughs> I, um, uh, I, I came from a, a working-class uh, um, family in the outer suburbs. My father didn't finish high school. My mum finished high school but didn't go much further. And I got kicked out of high school quite early on, um, uh, a couple of times, in fact. <laughs> um, and I uh, I worked a bunch of jobs. I worked in factories and then in call centres mostly. Um, my last uh, real job, uh, as my parents like to say, was parking cars in a parking garage. Uh, but uh, I was always interested in writing and filmmaking and all those sorts of things. So I worked for Qantas for quite a long time, the airline. Um, I, was, I worked in their call center, and I just started studying writing and filmmaking, mostly on my own back, and then went to film school. And then uh, when I f- sort of finished uh, studying, I realized that uh, I think writing was the thing I was more interested in. And we had our own film production company, a couple of us who went to film school together. But... Um, uh, we were three filmmakers trying to make a film production company. And it turns out when you have three artistic people in the same space that the business side of things didn't go very well. For instance, they got me to be in charge of finances because I was the only one who could work Excel, uh, which I don't think really makes you a brilliant uh, uh, strategic business mind. Um, and and we, we got to the point where when you're on your own film production company, early, especially in the early days, you actually, we got some jobs. So we did surf life-saving video. Um, the Pope was coming to uh, Australia. So I did videos for the Catholic Church, which as a heretic and as a uh, person who came from an Irish Catholic background uh, was uh, was quite a challenge uh, morally for me. Um, but yeah, we'd get work and then there'd be no work coming in. And so I just started writing about cricket for fun and then, it turned out I wrote about cricket in a way that no one had really written about it before, which wasn't as analytical or as scientific as it ended up becoming. But I wrote about it. I wrote about cricket in a way that cricket hadn't been written about in that I had a lot of fun with how I wrote, but also I looked at the game. So most cricket writing at that point was news-based and was nationality-based. As I said, it's a nationality-based sport. Most people knew everything they needed to know about Indian cricket, but they knew nothing about South African cricket or Zimbabwean cricket or Sri Lankan cricket. And I was very interested in the sport. So I, I would write about the whole thing. And then uh, there was a, a Wisden. So uh, for you, Jojo, and any Americans, Wisden is one of the most incredible publications that's ever existed. It's a yearly sports almanac that dates back to, I want to get this right, uh, 1857, I think. 
Um, there's never been a year, even during World War Two, even during the World Wars, when it wasn't um, printed. I think it was printed on very thin paper during World War One. Um, but it, it basically is, and I don't have one behind me to show you guys. But it's this in, a really thick book that comes out every year with every scorecard, basically from club cricket, uh, well, not club cricket, from school cricket in England through to kind of everything. Um, and they also ran magazines. And, and one of the guys who was deputy editor of one of these magazines was like, I know that you're just doing this cricket writing for a laugh, but if you move to England, there's probably a career in this for you. And I was just like, I'll move to England. <laughs> okay, why not? Um, I think my family was, I think, my, honestly, I, I'd had, you know, I'd had a troubled life up until that point. And I honestly think, well, now I know this for a fact, my parents thought they'd never see me again and that I was disappearing and uh, who knows what was going to happen to me. Um, and it turned out that uh, that writing about the game and not writing about the news was a huge thing. And also it, it, I happened to, my career sort of ran with a pit point because of Crick Info. Crick Info had opened up the ability to follow cricket everywhere. And it's a bit like that. You see that with with the athletic in America for American sports fans. Up until that point, you you kind of followed your city or your team and suddenly having the internet come up and you can have, you know, you know, uh, you can have very strong opinions about the Utah Jazz or, you know, Inter Milan or, you know, the New Zealand rugby team um, in a way that you couldn't do it before because you only saw them when they were in front of you. But cable TV and internet suddenly opened all that up. And I came through at a time where I knew who the Bangladesh cricket captain was and who, the you know, the best players were for um, for the Irish cricket team. And it just, I was right place, right time. And everything sort of took off for me the same way that international cricket sort of took off as a concept for fans. And, uh, I was, I was there at the right time, but yeah, it was, it was very weird. I mean, I, I wore a cap every day. Um, and going into Lords went, well, I think when I went into Lords, they still had a person who opened wine bottles for the press. Um, I mean, Lords is. I mean, it doesn't exist in any American sports. It is such a, it is, it's called the home of cricket. It is a pompous, ridiculous place where you can still take champagne bottles into the ground um, because they didn't want to stop their members taking champagne bottles. I mean, imagine going into Yankee a Stadium and having people popping short champagne um, corks onto the field of play because ch- champagne corks do not care about sport. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, those sorts of things. And I was walking in with a T-shirt on, probably with a stain on it or, a, you know, contentious slogan and a baseball cap uh, backwards. So I was very different. So I stood out in almost every way in that field. And I just went and, and everyone sort of said, why don't you write the way that everyone else writes? You'll get have a really good career. And I was just like, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. It seems to be working. Um, and, uh, you know, a short five years later, uh, it worked. No, and I think that that is where I think I I have enjoyed your writing through the years. I mean, I think they are factful. Um, some of the columns are very racy and true. <laughs> uh, and the beauty is that it was underlined. You showed the reader where that assumption came from. And, and I think just, I think you were one of probably the first writers, in my opinion, who actually walked the reader through the process of why you believed with data um, to ultimately show, because I mean, there were many, many great uh, journalists, et cetera, that have existed before you. And and this is no disrespect to them. I mean, they were fantastic. I still uh, kind of still read some of those online, whatever has been there. But I think 
what you did was you almost forced the cricket fan um to actually ask for data before they judged it i think that has been an incredible did you actually realize that that was happening was that something that at what point of time or first yeah as i said did you realize that was happening in the first place as you were writing as you were going through the years and second question is how did that kind of realization come about to you uh yeah. much later on well so i started as a blogger so my blog jojo was called cricket with balls because i wanted to di- differentiate from the actual cricket um the animal or the bug bug <laughs> um and so most writers before me started uh writing for magazines or newspapers uh and or they were trained through university so i come from a completely different background where my only training was film writing um yeah i wanted to be quentin tarantino and ended up here somehow um so my background was film writing and documentary writing which which is a little bit of journalism but self taught writing for a blog is such a contact sport in itself i always equate it to the guys who i know who came through the university training and newspaper training i equate them to guys who played basketball at um high school uh went to aau went to college and then get and um, picked up for the nba whereas writing for blogging is like almost going from being a street basketballer who occasionally plays organized sport to then ending up in the nba and you know how to do things really specific things really well but you don't have the overall skills i didn't know how to write a match report or a press conference when i started but you know ask me to write a 3000 word analysis piece on why they moved that field of 5 inches to the left and i could do that writing for blogging uh, writing as a blogger the other thing especially in those days and we're talking about the wordpress blogger days they were they were social media they were almost twitter before and facebook before those two things took off if you wrote a column about an indian cricketer and you're an australian bloke in your lounge room in in australia or in london you have to be solid on what you have written you have feedback if you're a newspaper writer and you do that Okay, you might get a letter to the editor 4 days later, you know, annoyed of sorry might get hold of you. It's not the same. If I wrote a bad column on a blog, it would be 150 comments explaining to me why it was wrong. And the other thing was I came from a very educated sports background. My my father was a cricket coach. Uh all my family played cricket. We were all into football. We were all very opinionated. If you were in with my family or my friends and you gave a sporting opinion that wasn't correct, it would be picked apart those two things sort of built into who i was and once you once you get into that there's almost a uh i think it's you're looking for you're looking for a piece that works now and that works in two years time if someone goes back to one of my pieces i want them to be able to go okay things have changed maybe that that what he has written about doesn't exist anymore but for that time and in, in place what he said was completely accurate and uh newspaper writers and magazine writers never had to deal with that because they just didn't get the constant feedback. I remember watching the newspaper writers in cricket and other sports go on to Twitter and watching them be aghast <laughs> at people just going, "Well, that comment uh, I I'm gonna... that hurt my feelings." Yeah, they would literally be like someone would be like, "Oh, your last piece was bullshit." And these guys would be like, "I've been writing about cricket for 20 years. What what are you saying?" and it'd be like yeah but that was nonsense and i had grown up in that to such a point that i wouldn't even put a piece out unless i didn't think it was bullshit or 
I wouldn't put a piece out unless I knew that some nitpicky guy on Twitter I couldn't have an argument with and at least stand my ground. And that is a completely different way of doing it. And uh, my background is there is, a, there is a way of writing sport that most of the world has that America doesn't have. And it is, it's based on English writers and it comes from cricket, essentially, which is this very sort of voice of God um, style of writing and it's very authoritarian it's very white male i believe this so it is true uh, some may say that he is an ordinary cricketer i wouldn't say that but here is my reason why i think he is right and i would read these columns and just be like this is nonsense and i grew up following documentaries and the old nfl documentaries and the espn documentaries i was much more into american sports than i was into english cricket writing and so i would be like no if you can't back it up and and if you if you have an opinion say that it's your opinion to begin with and then back it up with solid facts the way a documentary maker does so all those sort of things came together in one package for me and it, and it was very lucky and i started writing ridiculous like my column my original columns are uh, the blogs are wacky and you know i compare cricketers to paris hilton um, there's, uh, there's a whole, there's a whole, um, a series that I wrote about basically it's called the embed with series and it's explaining cricketers through how I believe they would have sex. Right. But all of that comes back to solid analysis. So the, the stuff the cricket writers couldn't get that my analysis was better than them because they were like, well, he swears in his pieces and he's talking about having sex in the back of a taxi with Shahida Freedy. But the truth is that Shahida Freedy played cricket like a, I like someone who was having sex in the back of a taxi. And so you start to, you start to put all these things together and, and it's very hard to win over the old audience, but that, that, sorry, not the old audience, the old writers. But here was another thing. I didn't care. I wasn't an old English person. I didn't come from that background. And as long as uh, I, I was getting things right, it started with there for me. So it all started with having a little bit of fun, but, because I had that background of, uh, of fighting with my, my friends and because I have that documentary background and because I came through that blogging, it all became, no, you're not going to be able to be nitpicky on this thing because I'm going to go to it. And then it just happens naturally. And after a while, you want to, uh, you know, uh, I'll go back to Wright Thompson before, like, you know, when he started working in cricket, me and him had lots of chats about writing. And Wright Thompson doesn't write anything like what I do. He doesn't do analytical pieces. He writes all about stories and he's a beautiful storyteller. But when me, me and Wright get on really well, and one of the things that we both like is we want it to be the definitive piece. If I am writing about something, I want it to be so good that other writers go, oh, damn, I can't write that now. And that means that you have to put that extra effort into it and you have to make sure that it's right. And the science thing, I didn't realize I was doing it from a sciencey background until later on, really. At first, you're just like, I'm good at this. You know, uh, the, you know, Mike bunch of numbers on Twitter is not going to be able to have a, uh, a, a solid take on this piece. And that's where it starts. So from there, let's actually go from where you were writing your blogs over to Crick Info, your social media pieces, your et cetera, et cetera, to how you ended up being an analyst for franchise cricket. So we spoke of the international cricket, the five-day cricket, which is the longest form, which everybody makes fun of. But there is this new kid on the block, which which in cricket terms is new, but in terms of every other thing in life, it's almost like more than, more than a decade old. And <laughs> yeah. you have become 
this kind of uh, data whisperer of sorts to both the website as well as to some of the franchise teams and how the way you and your friends, uh, some of your friends who still write for Crick Info, um, kind of dissect out that. So how did that happen, Jared, in terms of it? Tell us about that journey, because I think therein lies a message for some of the uh, some of the youngsters and others here about how to convert a passion, uh, irrespective of where you're working in, which area you're working in, as long as you're creative, as long as you're willing to be factful and be opinionated at the same time and back your opinions with facts, there is a future. So I think that's the lesson that I'm trying to get to here. But tell us a bit more about that journey of of earning your money to pay the bills uh, as, a, as an analyst. Yeah, it's it's so weird. I mean, you you almost have to understand about cricket here. I mean, I talked about the corks at, at you know, there's there's a chair at Lords that the cricket ground I was talking about before that is permanently kept vacant for the Queen. It's not cricket is not like other sports. It is it, it it's actually it was probably the first professional sport, and yet somehow let all the other sports go past it at certain times. And so it is a very conservative, um, it's, uh, you know, um, a very privileged sport in many ways. And then out of nowhere, cricket comes up with this incredible uh, format of the game, which basically is, it's what every other sport, it's what golf and tennis and rugby have all been trying to do. It comes up with a format of the game that can sell itself to a younger audience called T20, which stands for uh, 20 over cricket. So it's 20 overs a side. I won't explain what that is, Jojo, but essentially it's, it is designed to be three hours long. And it turns out that it's a very good format of cricket and that it's a very interesting format of cricket. I come along. Three hours and 120 pitches in baseball terms yeah. to each team. And whoever gets the highest number of runs wins. Yeah, it's very, it's much more like baseball than any other format of cricket. Um, uh, it's almost like a combination of baseball and basketball. Everyone starts with the exact uh, same amount of possessions as each other. It's an efficiency sport. It's really interesting. Because the older world wasn't following this because they just went well they, basically t20 cricket came with cheerleaders literally the first indian premier league hired the nfl cheerleaders across um uh which brought its own problems uh, uh which is a funny story about uh how black black cheerleaders um handled india um and then how cheerleaders were uh, objectified in india but that's a whole different story yeah. but you got to imagine that you're putting this this modern capitalist sport that is an international base for the first time because it was franchise based. It was copied off Premier League football and American sports. And then, and you're putting it all together. Now, I am a younger cricket writer coming through at this point, And I'm thinking, do you know what? No one's taking this sport seriously, but it's quite interesting. Uh, there's a lot of new things that we're learning about cricket that we've never learned before. Uh, and there are a lot of numbers involved. But unlike what happened in Moneyball, Moneyball had that beautiful 20 years of Sabre metrics where Everyone had all the nerds had access to all the data and they could go off and they could look at all the data and then slowly things start to change in the sport. Cricket, all that information was being kept, but none of the actual ball by ball stuff, so the pitch by pitch stuff, if you will, was made available to anyone. But there was this beautiful thing that was invented on on Crick Info uh, called Stats Guru, which you could go through and you could get, you could look at. Um, someone's record only at in, in certain grounds. So obviously in most American sports, other than baseball, which has a slight park variation, um, it doesn't matter if you're in a basketball court in Boston or if you're in a basketball court in Seattle, right? Sorry, Seattle Supersonics fans. I know you don't exist anymore, but I still, you know, I remember. Um, 
It do, that doesn't matter. Whereas cricket completely matters. A cricket ground in Guyana is in South America and is on a low dung heap and the ball doesn't bounce above your knees. A cricket pitch in Western Australia uh, bounces at your throat every time, no matter where you bowl the ball. They are almost two different sports, so you need to separate all this stuff. We now had access to all this, and then we had access to all these other things, but what we didn't have was this pitch-by-pitch information that we needed. So I wrote a piece for ESPN (laughs) essentially saying – we don't know anything about this sport because old people don't take it seriously and because we don't have this information. And I was sort of calling the sport out and saying, I know that people behind the scenes are doing this. No one's writing about it. Uh, there was already a Moneyball aspect in cricket. Uh, it was about 10 or 12 years after the Moneyball explosion. Uh, Michael Lewis's book had come out. Um, and I wrote this book. And to be fair, my boss, um, Sam Bal, is one of the most respected editors of anything in India, sort of went, well, why don't you just do it? Like, why don't you just start writing about this sort of stuff? So this shows you how stupid cricket is. I wrote that piece in 2016. Uh, By 2018, I was the analyst for a cricket team. Um, And there's a brilliant book um, called uh, The Only Thing Is It Has to Work, which is a baseball book written by Sam Miller of ESPN and Ben Lindbergh. I don't know who Ben's working for at the moment. Maybe Atlantic. uh, The Athletic, sorry. Um, they wrote this incredible book about being baseball nerds obsessed with moneyball type stuff and going to, uh, to go in, into a team. And they went in, they went from that to working with the lowest level of professional baseball that you can get in California. And so I contacted Sam Miller and said, I'm about to go off and do the same thing as you guys can give me some tips, except mine slightly differently. Uh, I have four of the most famous cricketers in the world who will be in my team. And that's my first job ever working in professional sports. And, and who are those four famous cricketers? Jared, just for, especially for the the Asian or the cricket lovers who actually listen to it. I, th- I, th- I think it's important to actually know how many people you actually made uh, made people stand up and listen to what you had to say. Go on. Well, it's worth, it's worth saying who some of the cricketers were because they're really interesting in themselves. So uh, one of the big the biggest cricket news stories in the last couple of years that made um, American news was a thing called Sandpaper Gate, when the Australian players took sandpaper onto the field to change the um, uh, the ball. Um, and one of those players who was suspended for that was David Warner, one of the best players in the world. So, you know, I ended up having breakfast for him and sharing a limo with him and all the things that you do when you're with a professional cricketer. So he was one. Another guy was called Darren Sammy, who is the most famous cricketer in the world ever from a place called St. Lucia. And if you haven't heard of St. Lucia, that's okay. It's not it's not a very big island. But let's just say that uh, if Darren Sammy ran for president of St. Lucia, he would get 101% of the votes and it wouldn't be rigged. Um, so he was another one. Uh, we then have a guy called a Kyron Pollard, who's from Trinidad, who's incredibly famous in India for playing. In Mom- I mean, it's just, it was guys, it was one after the other. It was kind of like that, uh, where you, you were in this situation. And this all came from, so 2016, I wrote this column going, we should write more about T20 cricket and how an- modern analytics is shaping the game. And in 2018, I'm working for the teams. And that, that came from, Essentially, I, I think it was 2017, 2018. So we do cricket seasons a bit like basketball seasons. Uh, 2017, 2018, I was going out to cover um, test cricket. So the five day, the boring old traditional cricket. And when I got out there, my, my editor, um, Sambit, uh, said to me, you've kind of covered test cricket a lot. Why don't you just go to the Big Bash, which is the Australian franchise T20 competition where all the teams have silly names. Um, and uh, why don't you write about them? 
and try this thing, this thing you keep telling me everyone should be doing. Why don't you just go and do it? I got my first job offer, I swear, two weeks into writing about analytics in cricket, which tells you how far behind cricket was in analytics um, at that point, but also how revolutionary what I was doing was. There's only probably one other person before me who had written about it publicly on a major platform. His name was Freddie Wilde. He now works in, in T20 cricket. He's working for Rajasthan Royals in the IPL. But from that, from that 17, 18 period, I was working with players. Coaches were contacting me. Um, I got the St. Lucia Stars job where I became the analyst for them. Uh, um, I then became the Melbourne Stars analyst, uh, which is, you know, uh, I then worked for the Royal Challengers Bangalore as a consultant. I consulted right across. So it, these weren't, I wasn't starting at the bottom. <laughs> I was like, like Melbourne Stars is like a big team. Royal Challengers Bangalore is a big team. Uh, you know, working with David Warner and Kyron Pollard and Darren Sammy, these are big deals. Uh, and I had no idea what I was doing. The first time I went into a team meeting, the head coach, Roddy Eswick, who for no other, I'm just going to mention his name for one reason. He was, um, uh, Rihanna's, uh, high school, um, PE teacher. And Rihanna recently met up with him at a cricket game and did a hug. She said he was an inspiration. Roddy Eswick is one of the greatest people you will ever meet. And he's, he's a proper teacher. He's, he's a, he's now a cricket coach, but. Uh, he should just work with young people forever. He just saw me and just went, can, you can go run the bowling meeting. So I'm in with like some of the most famous people in cricket. And I'm like with my laptop in front of me trying to explain cricket to them. And they're, and they're listening partly because the stuff I was saying, no one had said to them before. It's such a weird situation. So I went from being a journalist one day to being a uh, uh, an analyst and then a general manager as well the next day. Um, and it, it brings weird challenges. Uh, I was the analyst for the Scottish men's cricket team. Um, and uh, I had written about the Scottish. Do they even have non-rainy drays to actually play cricket in Scotland, which would be the most, priv- I mean, even even as somebody who lives in England, like you, Jared, I mean, I, whenever I've been to Scotland, it's goddamn rained every bloody single day. I think what we say about Scottish cricket is they're very good at it considering how little cricket they actually get to play. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not ideal. Um, but yeah, I'd written about them and now I'm in there working with them. So it is. A, it was a very weird thing, but it all came from the fact that I was searching for answers in cricket that people, other people hadn't done. And I was very lucky to have Crick Info backing me as well. I mean, eventually they just said, look, uh, you know, as long as you're available for major international tournaments and and anything that India, Australia and England play, because they're the big three teams. Uh, if you want to go off to Derbyshire, um, and if you haven't heard of Derbyshire, don't worry, you're not missing anything on a, on a Wednesday um, and watch a T20 game. You go and you do that. And so I started doing those sorts of things and watching random cricket leagues and um, you know, as I said before, because cricket is such an international sport, it's sort of, you know, suddenly there's a league in Qatar. Um, and there's a league in Nepal and there's a league in Hong Kong. And so if you follow all those things, you, you start to work out. And so through that one form of cricket, I then started to work out that we could work out all forms of cricket through this. And it was really, uh, it, it's a combination of being able to steal the best information, which is what I mostly have to do, um, and ask the right questions. And luckily as a journalist, uh, I was in the right place to ask the right questions. And I could, I then knew enough people to steal the information. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. So 
the guy that that what started doing your your film production company's books using Excel, and now to a guy who <laughs> high impact data to to coach and and advise these high money sports and teams? How, how did you acquire that knowledge and make that? that transition because we've got a lot of machine learning and AI folks who listen and they're, they're going to be like, wow, I could have done this with my life instead <laughs> of working out, you know, cells and nucleotides and gene expressions. How did, how did that happen? Yeah, basically I, because I'm not a scientist and I'm not a mathematician, I was very good at math at a very young age. Um, uh, I, but then, as I said, I got kicked out of school, so I never went on and learnt these things. But I did manage to learn Excel, and I don't know why I learnt Excel. Which, And it meant that through Excel, I could colour code things and look for pattern recognition. That's essentially what I'm looking for now. I am looking for patterns within sport. That the natural acceleration of, of looking at colour coding in Excel means applying advanced machine learning to, um, applications to take it up a notch. Yeah, so that's where we're, that's where I am now, but I can't code. So I am, uh, I'm sort of held back by my lack of coding. So I started with Excel and I am looking for patterns. I'm looking for things that don't fit the norm. Once I think what, I, I, I've got a lot of friends who work uh, with the government in Australia and I say to them all the time, if you can get your hands on this stuff and you can get it into a format that you can go through it, there's, it doesn't matter if it's sport or if it's business or if it's science, you're essentially, you're looking for the same thing. You're looking for anomalies and you're looking for patterns, right? So the machine learning stuff, that's the next step. And that's where the American sports are. And that's where the top end of cricket is. And I'm working with a guy called um, Amal Desai at the moment who works for, I always forget if he works for Google or Facebook, he's going to kill me. I think he works for Google. So he's taking my basic ideas and I push him, as far as I can. And then he doesn't answer me for a month because he's sick and tired of me um, prodding him um, in the chest. But we are now using machine learning and, you know, advanced algorithms and mathematics to do that. But you, you have, it, it doesn't matter if you start there or if you start with the pen and paper. So Bill, Bill James started the sabermetrics movement in baseball. Um, and his was, I would have assumed started with um, his own uh, his own logging of games and using that data to come up with things. In cricket, there's an incredible guy called Krishna Tunga who has, I think he was a mobile phone salesman. He's been a model. Um, he seems to be just like a professionally middle-class Indian man who sat at home watching cricket games on VHS tape and came up with... I was just going to bring that up, Jared, I think <laughs> which is exactly where I think you, you went. I'm yeah. Thank God for that because I think for, the, for most of the cricket aficionados and other things i think the australian cricket team of the late 90s and early 2000s especially the coach he was not a cricket guy uh, and i think he bought what was said in the in the media to be a lot of data into their approach to the games etc but go on uh, that, yeah. that's the setting for the story but go yeah. on krishna tunga this this random he's a mad guy like he's a genius he's still i don't think in the last couple of years he's worked for a cricket team and uh, i got him i got him an agent and i think eventually his agent was just like it's too much he's too much and to explain what he did was he watched these games on tape so he's like he lived in india almost every cricket game in the world was shown in india he would record them onto a vhs tape which as we said is not easy it's five hours uh, sorry five days of cricket six hours of play sometimes seven hours because I won't get into why sometimes it takes seven hours rather than six, but that's cricket. 
so you're talking about, you know, uh, 30 hours of footage on these VHS tapes. And he then went into Word and he found a way to code on Word. Now, if anyone's ever used Word, which sadly we all have, you shouldn't code anything on Word. And yet he started there to code cricket games and to do it that way. This is in the late 90s. He then... The, the cricket coach that Arun was talking about earlier is a guy called John Buchanan, a mad scientist cricket coach, the sort of Billy Bean of cricket. He, he goes up to him in a hotel and goes, I've got all this information. Do you want it? Um, that's where we were starting. So all me knowing how to use an Excel spreadsheet and knowing how to color code an Excel spreadsheet meant that I could find things straight away that cricket coaches, you know, the, the really, really simple things like, so one thing that we have, so you have balls in baseball when, when the when the pitch is too wide. We have something called wides in cricket, which means you get one run if you pitch the ball too wide, if you deliver the ball too wide, and you have to re-bowl that ball to, to the batsman. And so in cricket, you would hear cricket coaches say things like, well, a wide is worth one run. And I was like, well, no, because if you have a 120-ball game and you add an extra ball to the game, it's worth one run penalty, but it's actually worth what one ball is worth. So every wide that you bowl in T20 cricket is actually worth 2.3 runs. And if you bowl it at the end of the game when everyone's trying to slog the ball out and hit home runs, essentially, which is sixes in cricket, it's worth three runs a ball. Being able to go to a coach and tell them that mathematically all it did really was allow them to understand the game just that little bit better. It's not like they knew that wides were good before and that I changed it, but being able to say to a bowler, you can take this risk and bowl wide here. This is what it is worth to you. It is worth three runs if you get it wrong. If you get it right, we might get away with it and he won't hit it for six. Those things, we weren't at that level because cricket was cricket set up exactly the same way as baseball. It's just that we didn't use the data. We just didn't use the information the way that, uh, to be fair, up until 1980, neither did baseball. We just didn't use it for another 25 years after. I've got friends who work for the cricket, uh, who, who run the cricket statisticians, and they're baseball fans. And I'll be like, how did you have all this information in front of you and not want to know if the first ball of the over is more deadly than the last ball of the over, how did you want, not want to know what what um, uh, uh, the, the the how the run rates change in cricket and how people score quicker at this part of the game and slower at this part of the game and why does that happen? It was all there. All I needed was spreadsheets. And now the next generation is uh, spatial tracking and um, you know the the the, the, um, the new uh, super slow cameras where you have you know five thousand frames per second or minute or whatever they are that, that they used to, to show hummingbirds um, that is now used in baseball. We'll get those in cricket. Well, we're going to have all those sorts of things come across. But it had to actually start with Krishna Tunga in Word and it then had to go on to me using an Excel spreadsheet. And not just me, but guys like me and Joe Harris and, um, and Clive and Freddie and there's heaps of us across the sport who were just like, we have to take this information and put it into, into a way that we can get it. And then we, you know, um, there's a, a great guy, I think he's an architect or a town planner called Kartikeya, um, who's a, a, bit, a bit like Krishna. You know, the way that he looks at cricket, he's not even looking at it as a sport at this point. He's looking at it as a, you know, a mathematical riddle that he can try and, um, uh, that he can try and work out. That wasn't happening before. So I was right place, right time. I still can't code, Jojo. I keep trying to teach myself and I, 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 can't, I can't learn it. It's a stupid language. So I, I have a question about how you actually apply the data, especially as a, as a team advisor, analyst, um, coach in 
normal parlance. A lot of the times with Sabermetrics and, and, you know, Lewis and Billy Bean, the data that they were given lets them play to the target that's immediately in front of them as opposed to what's about to be in front of them. So they're almost always playing catch up, right? So they, they, they draft and they plan according to, they're almost half a step behind by virtue of having to wait to collect the data. How does that timing influence um, strategy and in cricket. And I, and I think even in baseball too, they're finding that, you know, they've got to use the data to be as a, a tool to project the future as opposed to responding to the past. Uh, I was going to say, essentially, you can't tell the future in anything, right? What we can do is use big data packages um, to tell probabilities better. And there are certain things that we have been able to check through uh, a baseball and cricket and basketball and all these sports is we could say that we can't tell a, a player what to do next, but we can say that a three-pointer is worth more than a two-pointer. And so that if you are shooting a long two-pointer, there is a no mathematical reason to be able to do that. We can say that hitting a home run is better than striking out. Um, everyone sort of knows that to begin with, but you can say that walking is actually valued far more. So you start to look at the probabilities. So baseball was a perfect version of this because we know that when there is uh, one batter out and two batters on on place, we know the probability of you scoring at that stage. We know to say to a batter, this is your best chance. Now, the the pitcher might completely stuff with this. They might... um, They might... um, uh, uh, You know, uh, uh, change the field... um, uh, up on you, uh, which we find funny in cricket because we've been doing that for 250 years and it took baseball uh, well, until Ted Williams really came about um, to actually move where the fielders were. But that shows you how different sports don't always look at things properly. If, if, if there's, I don't think that it would be as possible to do something like that now. Like how is it possible in 1980 for basketball, all basketball coaches not to go, wait a minute, this shot's worth one extra point. Why don't we start doing this more often? Um, you know, little things like that. Like I always used to watch the NFL and just be like, why are they running the ball? Why would you ever run the ball in the NFL unless you're trying to take time out of the clock? The best, yeah, it makes sense to, I mean, for me, it always made sense that the NFL was a spacing game. All you wanted to do is make sure that you had one-on-ones on each wing and then you would back your receiver to beat their, their corner. And I'm just like, you're giving it to a bloke just to headbutt another bigger bloke in the ass over and over again. You want, you want to create space here. And what, what all the, what all these learnings, uh, and machine learnings and data learnings and even video learnings that we, we now have the access to, we can just go, ah, oh, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. And of course, we're going to have seven guys, um, out because this guy always pulls the ball. You know, and those little things allow us to do it. So it puts the odds more in the favor. And that's what I say to cricketers. I say, look, I cannot tell you what is going to happen in this game. But what I can tell you is this. Every cricket team in the world will slow down in the seventh over because we know that. If we don't slow down in the seventh over and we take that as an advantage, that means we are five to ten runs better off than every other cricket team in the world. That I can tell you right now. If you tell me that when you went out in the seventh over, you tried to do that and the conditions weren't in your favor or the bowling was too good, that's all right. As long as you know coming in, that's where we can get our advantage over another team. 
the same with the, the West Indies cricket team, where they basically realized that they had a bunch of guys who could hit sixes when no one else could. So imagine having a basketball team where you're the only team that has a bunch of guys who can shoot three pointers. And they just went, we have to take risks to score one run, two runs, three runs, four runs um, uh, when we bat. So every ball you can get anywhere between one and six runs, um, essentially. Um, although you can't get fives. I'm not going to explain that a run. That would broke JoJo's head. But essentially, you can get all these other things. So West Indies batsmen were like, well, if we, we have to take a risk to get one run because we still have to hit it into a gap and run. If we hit sixes, we're taking a slightly bigger risk, and that's worth six runs. Mathematically, those sorts of things start to come in. So when they talk to me, I'll be like, yeah, mathematically, you are better off to take those chances. That's essentially what you're doing. What's really interesting to me is that what the what Moneyball did was it commodified players, and it said this player is worth this amount. What the new form of, and I don't know what you would call it, um, uh, in fact, there's a, a Ben Lindbergh wrote a new, a new book called The MVP Machine where it really, really brilliantly discusses this whole thing, is now what I do is I, sp- I, don't, I spend a little bit of my time trying to work out who the best players are mathematically. But then I work with a player directly and go, this is what you do. Now, every time you face this kind of bowling, you go out. Do you want to talk to me? Do you want to look at the video? Do you want to um, go and talk to a coach? But one way or another, if you can eliminate this problem or negate this problem, you go from being worth this much on the open market to being worth this much on the open market. You go from being a fringe player to Scotland to being a first pick player for Scotland. And then we start to go through these sorts of things. And then, so we have a thing in cricket where, you know, in baseball, you pitch off off the mound, whereas in cricket, you can come from either side. Literally saying to a guy, you when you bowl to left-handers, you are getting smashed everywhere and you never bowl around the wicket. If you bowl around the wicket, it's a completely different skill set that you have to learn. You have to practice it in the nets. I'm just an analyst, right? But I can tell you that if you master this skill, you will have a different form of attack. So when left-handers start to attack you, you will have a completely different thing to offer them. We are now then using data and big data to actually change who the players are. And if you go through the baseball and basketball, I mean, you look at someone like Anthony Davis, who hopefully is about to lose to Denver Nuggets in the play, in the playoffs at the moment. Uh, Anthony Davis, the way he plays basketball would not, he would not have to have done that 20 years ago. 20 years ago, he would have taken the odd three-pointer and he would have got stronger and bigger, probably would be a, a bigger player now, and he would play all of his basketball in the low post. He now spends very little of his time in the low post and he would be just as great a player, but he's a different kind of player. So my job is saying to great players, to average players, and especially to fringe players, look at what is happening now. This is where the game is going. If you can, If you can use my data to help you uh, uh, to plan and to change what you're doing, uh, that's what you're going to do. So we went from commodifying players to using it as a teaching aid, which I think it, for me is much more interesting. I don't want to say this player is rubbish and this player is great. I want to be able to go to the player and say, this is what I have noticed. This is what someone else has done, and I think you could do it because you have a similar skill set. But now we have to work on it. I'm not a coach. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to to do that. But I've talked to the coaches. They think it's a good idea, but you have to buy in. And when you that's that's the really, really exciting thing because there are very few athletes at the professional sports level who aren't good enough and don't have talent. But most of most of the time they're just not they're not looking for the best way. They they are they've spent their whole life nodding 
at, at, uh, at coaches who come in and go, well, when I played, I did it this way. What we are being able to do and uh, analysis right through sport is be able to go, yeah, that did work. But if you can see now, we found a different way and we think you can do this. And here's, here's a roadmap for how to do it. So I think being an analyst is an educator and I happen to be lucky. You know, there's a, a lot of lucky things have happened in my life other than just being white and a uh, male. Um, and one of them is the fact that I come from a family of teachers. And my, you know, my father was a cricket coach. My mum was a librarian and almost all my aunties and uncles were teachers. So I literally talk, spent a lot of time talking to them and just being, how do I get someone to do this? And they always say the same thing. If you want to teach someone something, you have to get them to buy in. So I make it as visual and as story based as I can when I talk to a player. This is what this guy does. Um, and so I recently had a story with, uh, uh, sorry, I had a, an analysis with a Pakistani player who was really struggling in his career a guy called Sean Masood, and he sought me out because he knew the work I'd been doing. And I said, look, I'm going to make it really simple. There is, there is one weakness that test cricketers have, and if they have it, they never have a career. And you have that weakness. Here are three players I know who have overcome that weakness, and this is why they are great players. Study one of them and work out which thing that works for you. I can't tell you how to do it because if I could do that, I would hopefully be playing myself. But what I can tell you is that if you know what that problem is and you go to a cricket coach and tell him that you have to fix that problem, the two of you will be able to come up with a solution. So I went from, you know, I gave him the data. He went off. He comes back to England, makes a lot of runs, makes me look like a genius, um, and which, you know, I, which is why I'm telling the story so that you all think I'm a genius. But essentially, it comes down to him just getting the information. And before the analysts were there, it, it had you had to be an incredibly intuitive coach or player to get... You had to be LeBron James beforehand. You don't have to be LeBron James anymore. You have to be good at finding the information and then doing the hard work and getting... And then being able to sell that information to the player um, or the team. Yeah. This looks like a great opportunity for you to work in conjunction with then taking this to the next level is working in conjunction with the specialty trainers and maybe even some biomechanic people who can who can analyze their weakness and then come up with a training regimen specifically designed to correct that. And you see it a lot in golf. You know, you Bryson mm. DeChambeau is training for the, you know, he's bulked up in exactly the right areas to produce a longer drive. Um, whereas some of the other golfers work on more nuanced muscle groups to control their their middle game. Um, it, it sounds like you could get a whole host of specialists in here and have a, a firm that does nothing but consult and, and improve player strategies. You have athletes like, like um, it's Bryson, isn't it? Is that his name, Bryson? Bryson? Yeah. yeah, you have athletes like him, and there's heaps of them out there. Sharma Sud is another one um, that I just mentioned. Uh, you see them in tennis. You see them in baseball. That I, f- I forget his name, but the, the mad um, a baseball pitcher who says he's not an athlete um, but has rebuilt his entire game. That's what, where this is going is that beforehand you saw athletes would work really hard, and they are brilliant at that sort of stuff. What they didn't have before was the access to the information, um, and it's and some of it is about injury prevention as well. It's, you know, simple things of, you know, the body is not supposed to twist that way. I mean, you talked about that, the muscle groups. So in cricket, we used to think that to be a fast bowler, you needed a big fat ass, right? And, and I know that sounds weird, but that was a thing we thought. And now we understand that it's all about core. So we weren't far off. We were close to the core. Um, and for a little while, bowlers got really strong in cricket and got big arms and whatever, and they, their backs just broke. 
And we are now being able to put all those different things together. Um, there's that the company Catapult, which is, I'm such a nerd about this company called Catapult. It came out of 1980s Australian um, uh, Institute of Technology, Sport, uh, the Australian Sport Institute, um, where they basically went, we don't know what the players, um, uh, um, uh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. We don't know what the players' uh, blood oxygen level is at the moment. We don't know what their heart rate is. We don't know how much they're sweating. We don't know how much they're running. And so cat, this, this company for, called Catapult came about and MB, uh, sorry, NFL players use it, uh, footballers use it, cricketers use it around the world. And it came out of weirdly this government run, um, institute where they just slap the thing in the back and they can now tell what the athletes are doing to be able to do that. So, you know, little thing in cricket you get, and this will work in every sport. You know, when coaches say how much effort you are putting in and coaches just say that all the time, anytime you're losing a coach will say, you're not putting in enough effort. Now, as someone who does analytics, I know how nonsensical that is. We now will be able to tell if players are putting up that much effort. And I know there was a very famous English cricketer, who the first time he had this at training um, and they and he asked what it was and they told him and he just went, oh, there's nowhere to hide anymore. Like, you guys will be able to tell if I'm not putting in. We, we now have that. And it also works for injury as well. Like, if you've got someone coming back from injury, you can tell if they're holding themselves back. All those sorts of things are available to us. And, you know, and, and the Scottish cricket team, which is at the very basic level of professional cricket, um, they have that information. Um, and then beside them, they have me marking every single ball, um, and, and, you know, coding it from, uh, from a cricket perspective for video and coding it from a data perspective, um, and all those sorts of things. What, what does the Golden State Warriors have? And, you know, what is, um, uh, what is, uh, I was going to say Barcelona, but they're, they're going, falling a bit apart, aren't they? But what does another good football team have access to? Like, and we don't know because it's a space race. That's one of the weird things that, Professional sport don't let it go. Uh, don't let this information go uh, that that easily. Um, most of the time, when you find out something, it's because either the team has already pivoted to a new idea, or it's accidentally been leaked. I mean, look at the Houston Astros. You know, sure it was cheating, but it was glorious cheating. I mean, you have to appreciate the the bastardry that goes into that level, the nerdishness that goes into that. Um, you know, and uh, that is where we are going. That sort of level and. Look at what cyclists are doing legally and illegally and the way that their bodies are, are being done. And people, athletes are taking their own blood out, guys, and putting it back in themselves. We yeah. are, we are at a level now where the billion dollars of sport has, is, is intersecting with what we can do with billions of dollars. And it is terrifying, but also very exciting. So yeah, yeah, what we can track now is, and, and there's also, there's a lot of athletes who are and competitions who are fighting back on that and going, I don't want my sporting league to know that I have a rare chromosomal disorder or that at 28, I'm not going to be able to jump anymore and all those sorts of things. And I remember in cricket and I think baseball is, I, I think have gone through this as well. Cricketers were really awkward when, when cricket boards started asking for them to get their eyes tested. We don't want you to know because the weird thing about cricket and baseball and a lot of sports have this is, it's not, we, we know scientifically there's no way you can hit a pitch at 90, 95 miles an hour. It's impossible. 
you're actually reading the picture and all the other different things um, before that. So cricketers and, and baseballers are like, yeah, actually, even with our bad eyes, so we think we could still eke out a couple more years here. We don't want to be on the scrap head. So we are at this real intersection of of information overload, of data, of, of um, machine learning, um, of, of literally being able to see a kid at 12 and go, uh, he might get to seven foot two. We we should uh, we sh- we should get involved with him early on. Those sorts of things. It's it's an interesting conundrum in American sports too, because the the players, especially with TBI and th- as things were starting to come out, you'd see the pa- the players fake their baseline so that if they did, if they didn't endure a head injury, they could have a better chance of being put back in the game to make their metrics and to make their bonuses because in football is not guaranteed is performance-based compensation. So they said, I've got three years on the field. I've got to make every dollar I can. I'm going to sacrifice my brain health and long-term health for the sake of, of making my bonuses because that's going to be my life. Exactly. You got to remember with when it comes to athletes, they are already sacrificing their bodies. They don't see it quite. They don't see CTE quite the way that we do. Some of them do, but there's a lot. Like for instance, uh, an Afghanistani cricketer got hit during the World Cup, and they for the first time ever cricketer proper concussion protocols, and they just waved away the doctors. And afterwards at the press conference, the captain said, "Yep, Afghanistani men are tougher than other men." And it's like. Look, we understand you guys have been through some shit, but your brain still works um, essentially the same as everyone else's. Do. But that that is how athletes have been trained. And, and it's why athletes are susceptible to doping um, and all those sorts of things. They're already putting their bodies on the line and they're already throwing themselves in. So they already think about it. But, but And they already, to be a top-level athlete, to be Tiger Woods, um, to be Serena Williams, uh, to be Lionel Messi, you already have to overcome everything. You, you, We see them as the finished article, but you have to understand that at one stage they were told they couldn't do that thing and that they can't do that thing. You have to be so irrationally confident in yourself. And, you know, it's the difference between, you know, the sort of person that opens a car door really quickly and it just misses the other car and you're the person going, oh, you should never do that again. They're the person who goes, yeah, but it missed the other car. It missed this time. They've got that a rational confidence of I knew what I was doing and it was always going to work out here. Um, and athletes are like that. And so it can be sometimes, you know, just on a basic level of a lot of them aren't educated. Um, you have the college system in America, but you have kids who are in um, football um, um, camps from eight years old in, 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 in Europe and in Africa now. Uh, you have you have Indi- young Indian kids who you know basically don't learn anything at school anymore because they spend all their time playing cricket. Uh, to be able to go with them and go, I think you'll find my algorithm disagrees with your <laughs> your understanding of the sport can be quite tough. And just educating them. I mean, when I had that West Indies, um, when I was with St Lucia, you had young Jamaican guys who, with no educational background because they left school so early, um, through to people with MBAs in the same room. Uh, you know, the, the scale of that is just incredible, and you get that a lot in professional sports. They are. It is such an eclectic, different group, and. You know, how many baseballers don't speak English and how many basketballers uh, are European? You you have you do learn how to deal with these different people in, in a way that quite often doesn't happen in, in other groups. But they have the, the very basic thing is they generally think they are um, undefeatable um, and uh, they are uh, very hardworking. Those are the, the, the traits that you get right across most most athletes. So I have I have one kind of 
divergent questionnaire. So whatever you said was so interesting. And the characters that you meet are are extremely interesting. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and ask a bit more. You can choose not to answer it because of how widely known and how widely you work with people. Uh, as a cricket fan, I just want to know um, who, in your opinion, driven by data, I'm not talking about your gut instinct or love for the game, driven by data, the best um, batsman, in your opinion, uh, in T20, uh, the best bowler in death overs at this current moment. I'm not talking about what happened before. And then who, in your opinion, is the best captain? Uh, th- th- that can be a subjective answer. So the captain can be a subjective answer. I was going to say. I mean, but not, but not the other two. Jojo's loving this part of the podcast. Uh, the best batsman uh, in T20 cricket is probably Andre Russell, uh, who is an incredible uh, an incredible specimen uh, psychologically and physically. He's not really um, – he's, he's uh, you know, from Jamaica – Incredible fast twitch muscles, but he also thinks about the game in a way that I don't think anyone else had the courage to think about the game. Uh, he has the ability to hit a six every ball he wants um, in a way that no one else ever has before. Um, obviously, he's slightly tainted by the um, by the drugs um, uh, being found guilty, uh, well, not being uh, uh, being suspended for one year for for the drugs. But as, if you're asking me, who is the most? who's the best batsman in the world and who I'd want my kids to follow. Um, that would be Andre Russell. Uh, best death bowler is really interesting. I'd have to go and look at the numbers. Um, but Rashid Khan up until recently was the best death bowler in the world. It seems like people are finally starting to work him out a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, the ability to spin the ball both ways at pace. And what an incredible story he is, you know, coming from Afghanistan uh, where they didn't even play cricket. Um the Taliban were pro-cricket and anti-cricket at the same time. Um, somehow cricket comes back from Pakistan refugee camps um, and then they end up, uh, you know, the only sport that Afghanistan is any good at is cricket. Um, what a random uh, collection that is. And then somehow we end up with one of the best players in the world is from Afghanistan. Uh, so that that's quite fun. And he's uh, quite a magician with the ball anyway. Yeah, exactly. And what he does, I mean, he learned basically what he does from YouTube. Uh, which is, you know, part of the the new way that cricketers and athletes learn. I mean, you get a lot of uh, basketballs and footballers, um, uh, soccer players, um, spend a lot of time on FIFA um, and NBA 2K learning tactics and things, Um, and you've got cricketers on YouTube learning stuff. Um, As far as captains, captaincy is so subjective that I actually hate talking about it with a fiery passion. So for those who don't know cricket, it's – Important to know that captain. And, and the reason why I asked you that question is, is so I would say that <laughs> most of the American sports actually don't have a captain. The coach is the is the final person who makes the the thing. There is always a star player on the field, like a quarterback in American football, etc., who kind of calls the plays. But in cricket, it's very different. Well, I find quarterbacks so weird that they have to listen to coaches because in cricket, captains don't. There's no way to listen to a coach. Um, everything is an audible. It's like that's all captains do. It's constant audibles without ever looking at the coach. And one of the other things is you get the playbook in, in, in American football and you're like, oh, these poor kids have to learn these playbooks. Try learning cricket captaincy. We can't even put fielding um, placements in cricket coaching manuals because it would be infinite uh, because the field is so big and there are so many different things that you can do. And then the pitch play, we haven't even talked about how cricket pitches are alive and change um, all the way through a game. 
So you have a cricket captain who is essentially head coach and quarterback at the same time. Plus they have to wear blazers and give a lot of speeches. It's a very weird, it's a very weird, um, uh, <laughs> uh, part of the game. And it is so subjective. Um, and that's why I hate talking about it, but, uh, it, I, I like things that you can quantify. So if you want to say, you know, most stylish cricket captain, um, you know, more than happy to uh, go into that, you know, maybe best beard on a cricket captain. I've got some numbers that can back you up there for Kane Williamson, but, uh, it's, uh, the, the problem, the problem with most things that people complain about in sport is essentially people complain about coaches and umpires or referees, right? Like that's like 90% of the things you can complain about. And it's just like my guys, my girls, like, come on now. Uh, you know, that's, there's so many more fun things that we can complain, uh, that we can actually argue about in sport. Like why on earth do they still, you know, um, do they still kick on the fourth down, uh, in, in football? You know, what, what is it going on? Why don't all basketballers at the end of quarters take three, uh, uh, shoot the ball? Why are they holding the ball? Why in cricket on the last ball do people not run until they go out? Ridiculous, you know, these are the things we should be arguing about. And instead it's like, who's the best captain? Oh, did you see what the refs did to us last night? No, you, there are more fun things to fight about. And I've made, I've made a career on that. <laughs> so it sounds like in your, in your family growing up the way you did that, that it, that even talking about sports is a full contact sport and having the data and the information to back yourself up yeah. is as important as having an opinion to begin with. And I think that's, I mean, that's certainly how, how things are in my family. It's like, well, if you, if you don't like the starting lineup, if you don't, you've got to tell me why you've got to tell me why you think my team is better other than I was just a, you know, born a Steelers fan. Um, yeah. I think if you, if you come from a family of teachers and anyone out there who does and teachers are legends and should be paid millions more dollars than they should and should be respected and all those sorts of things, but fuck, they're annoying Jojo. And they are like, uh, we, we had a teacher and I, ho- I hope he won't listen to this podcast. We had a teacher who plays cricket in Scotland and he'll, I'm not going to say his name, but the minute I met him, I was like, this bloke's a teacher. I can just tell because he just question and follow up question. And how do you know that? And blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is one of my aunties or my uncle right here. Um, and, and you, you know, and you, you grow up in those sorts of environments. And I think that that's one thing I try and teach young people. And I don't care if you're trying to be a journalist or an athlete or a scientist, you are shaped by where you come from. And so you, if you follow your passion and you look at what you become, I became a cricket writer and my dad's a cricket coach and my mom's a librarian. You put those two things together and it's not a big jump. Uh, to where I became, even if the, the idea, my mum said to me, oh, there's no point becoming a writer. You know, no one ever makes money out of being a writer. And she was a librarian. Um, and that was, the, she just didn't believe that someone coming from where I came from would become a, a professional writer. She thought a writer was something that you did on weekends, um, uh, when you were a lawyer. So you, but, but those sorts of things and all those little things that I look at and I had great storytellers, um, as family friends and my grandmother was an incredible storyteller. I mean, she would finish every story with, and he was as ugly as a hat full of assholes. Every story didn't matter if she was talking about a woman or a man, right? Uh, every, and everyone was a character in her. And then we had this other guy, um, who was almost like my de facto grand and grandfather, um, who, he had, you know, he taught me how to tell stories without ever, t- like I, 
to this day, I know he, he's known as Bonga Bonga, and that all comes back from a story that he once told about winning a championship. Um, I, I think it was a cards championship in a place called Bonga Bonga, uh, which didn't exist, of course. He made the entire story up, but he was Bonga Bonga in my family. And I grew up with those storytellers and then the teachers who were all about facts and educating people. And then, I and you know, growing up in Australia, you grow up in this incredible sporting place. And, you know, when I was... Uh, when I was 12, I was playing seniors tennis. So I would play cricket in the morning and then play seniors tennis in the afternoon. And then all, and then when they put lights up on the tennis court, we played, you know, so I would play cricket from 9 a.m. Um, and finish tennis at 11 p.m. at night. And then on Sunday, you go and play golf in the morning and then you go back to cricket and then maybe tennis. Then you play midweek tennis. Then I would play basketball. Like all of those things put together with, with the kind of person I was and the kind of people I grew up with. That's how you build your future is all of those things and you use all of those strengths and you follow your passion, whatever it may be, whether it, whether it becomes your profession or not, and you use all those things and then, uh, then you hope to be just really lucky, which is the last thing that you can't do anything about. And you just, and sometimes you get lucky. I got lucky a lot. Brilliant. That's fantastic, Jared. So I think we, we are going to close because uh, when- I have to take my son to his piano lesson. <laughs> that is absolutely true. And before you do that, I think people also need to know uh, we're also going to use this platform to actually take because you don't just have a podcast and you don't just write about cricket. There are many other things that you do. And I think we spoke a bit, at least when, when the three of us spoke prior to the recording, we spoke about your love for movies and other things. So why don't you tell us a bit about some of the information about the projects that you're doing like one of them that i know is a red inker podcast but i'll let you do the honors there so that uh, just because i i don't want to bungle it up but but go for it <laughs> well look if, if you're if you're listening to this and you're interested in uh why this crazy cricket guy got to speak to you for an hour and a half and you want to learn about cricket i've got a podcast called double century which is about the history of cricket and as i said the history of cricket is like um <laughs> Jane Austen's uh, nephew has something to do with the history of cricket. Um, that, as I said that before, the, the word megastar comes from the history of cricket. It, it, it's a ridiculous sport with so many stupid things that have happened in it. Um, that we used to have one arm and one leg cricket games that used to get 20,000 spectators um, in cricket. It is such a weird, stupid um we used to play that at the terraces of all the apartments in India because you could only use one hand to catch the ball and you could only use one hand to play it. We used to play hand cricket all the time hand because cricket. that was the only way that the ball would not fall off from the fifth story of the of the apartment. Exactly. So you have to save yourself and save your friends it is from such a, breaking their heads. And, yeah, and, and that was when you got a proper ball because often you had to make your own cricket ball as well. So, it's a, it, so if you if you are interested in cricket at all, so it, it's called Double Century. Um, and it's uh, it, you can get it on all the podcasty places. If you are a cricket nerd, then Red Inca is for you. But don't go into Red Inca uh, on your own because it's terrifying if you haven't learned anything about the sport. Uh, but I also have a YouTube channel, uh, which is just under my name, Jared Kimber, and there's other things there. I did a breakdown of uh, a, a sporting scene in Ocean's Eleven recently. I've actually got a project coming up. Here's a world exclusive for you guys, although it'll probably be out by the time your podcast comes out, where I've gone through Aaron Sorkin, in all of his TV shows mentions cricket. So I have gone through and done yeah. a review of all, and I got this close to getting Aaron Sorkin on, on, um, on it. But unfortunately he, the co he was in COVID lockdown. He had nothing to do and he was all up for it. And then unfortunately they, you know, President Trump decided to kill everyone again and uh, changed all the restrictions. So, uh, I, th I th unfortunately I didn't get Aaron Sorkin on, but, um, 
Uh, yeah, the YouTube channel is quite fun. But yeah, I've you know if you are interested, I've written a, a book about the history of cricket uh, called Test Cricket: The Unauthorized Biography. Um, but it, it's all there. Just Google my name. There's there's a lot of stuff that comes up. A lot of random stuff. And, and if you want to see Jared, you can see him on other things. Or there is a fantastic movie on Amazon Prime. Oh, I forgot about my movie, Gentleman, where Jared comes as himself doing the documentary, exploring corruption in cricket by the three big countries which is india england and australia yeah it's that's a, it's actually probably a good place for people to start because it, it it really it shows about it's about how things get corrupted and um how, how people's love gets turned against them um and it's really more about big business and uh government interference than it is about cricket itself but uh but with lots of lovely crickety shots in the middle and a guy called ed cowan a friend of mine who um uh, who you will fall in love with if you watch the movie because um, he's a bit of a doofus who went on to play cricket for his country. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, look, I've done a lot of things. Um, I've been on a lot of – I get invited on a lot of baseball podcasts now to talk about cricket um, as well. And, uh, you know, there's a burgeoning cricket community in America that is coming through. And they had – America have a great cricketer, a guy called Barton King, who played in 1905, who was one of the best cricketers in the world. Um, and they now have a hundred over a hundred years later, a guy called Ali Khan, who's the first American to play in the Indian Premier League. Um, so hopefully there's been a bit of a renaissance in cricket um, uh, over there because at one stage, Philadelphia was one of the hotspots of cricket in the world. And it's a real shame that it no longer is. Now it's the home yep. of the Eagles. Yeah, which is not the same. And, and cheesesteaks, is that what they're called? The ones oh, that, really they- that, that were good. We can... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jared. And I think we we uh, what we we'll, I'm going to do is put some of the, especially the one that you did on Henry Wagner as the ultra modernist in cricket is <laughs> is definitely going to go on our website as as a resource for people to actually understand how you pick players and show their utility. I think that is a fantastic piece of of YouTube journalism. I must say, if if that's a real term, but it's not. Thanks but so I'll much. Go with it. <laughs> Uh, absolutely you, you just have to go with it because i'm calling it uh <laughs> thank you so much for taking my message uh on twitter and just e- embracing it and having multiple chats with me and then now doing this with me and jojo really appreciate it no problems thank and thank you for having the the least scientific person that you'll ever have on this podcast on your podcast Don't bet on- i would dispute that but- cheers guys i better go that was a pleasure i'll talk to you soon bye all right thanks Jared. bye-bye Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Hey.